Hi, I'm Brett Terpstra, and this is Systematic on ESN. My guest this week is Nathan Edwards. He's lead editor at The Wirecutter. How's it going, Nathan? Hey, it's going well, Brett. How are you? I am good. We, we should, just for safety's sake, acknowledge that you're not here representing The Wirecutter or the parent company, New York Times. Do you want to make a disclaimer? Sure. Uh, yeah, I'm here as a private citizen, um, and we will probably talk about Wirecutter a little bit, just in, because it's something that I spend a lot of time thinking about, but I'm not speaking for anybody but myself here. All, all tweets are, yeah, what's that common people always have in their bio? Tweets are mine. All opi- yeah, all opinions are mine and are also extremely correct. <laughs> so, first, I guess we will talk about the Wirecutter. Wirecutter is where I go. Um, basically, if I can't find a Marco review on a very specific topic, Wirecutter has the product comparisons that I need, and it, it's simplified, and, and I can trust the research. How did you get into this? Well, when I when um, Wirecutter first came out in late 2011, I think within the week I had found it, and I was obsessed with it. Um, I said I went to the place that I was working at the time, which was a computer magazine, and I said we have to be doing this, but for desktop computer components. Um, and about a year later, when we didn't uh, at all, um, <laughs> well, a little bit. We it did it did already influence the way that we covered PCs because we started doing like desk uh, the started doing more like the ninety nine percent computer instead of like this is the craziest thing you can put together. Um, <laughs> But about a year later, uh, when I went freelance, because my wife and I moved across the country, and you couldn't work remotely back then, uh, uh, Seamus Bellamy, who worked for the Wirecutter, and my former boss, Will Smith, who had worked with Brian previously, uh, you know, got me in contact with Brian, and I started writing about computers for him, and I've been there about four years now. All right. Did, did you come in as a lead editor? How did you no. work your way to that? I came in as a freelancer writing about, I think the first thing I wrote for this site was the best Android phones at the time, which was, I think, the Nexus 4 or 5 or something. And I just started doing more and more writing. And then the usual writer to editor treadmill, you know, you write a lot and then they have you write less. And then soon you're not writing anything at all. Yeah. Yeah. I'm familiar with the path, not because I've been through it. I've just watched it. I don't, I've never been good at jumping into a blog and, and continuing to write a lot. I still have credit at uh, like Mac stories, but I haven't written anything for probably a year now. I'm, I'm not great. Not it's, great at it's, hard. it's hard to keep that kind of thing up. My, uh, my path is littered with blogs that have, I spent more time setting up than writing for. You know, one yeah. post here, two posts there. Uh, the <laughs> yeah. death of Zanga eliminated all of my college blogging, which is a, I owe them a great debt Zanga, for I, that. Oh, I'm thinking of Zenya. What, what was Zanga? Zanga was like LiveJournal. Um, it was one of those blogging sites from that era, <laughs> except it was for moody college students, even more so than LiveJournal. Wow. I think. Angel Fire? Like later more, than more that. than angel okay more than angel fire it was it was like live journal except it was called zanga hmm. interesting i somehow missed that it's how, I, I don't know that you missed that much how old are you i'm 31 
31. Okay, your college years would have been different than mine. How old are you? Uh, 30, let me think, 38. <laughs> 38. Okay, I mean, that's a big enough difference, not, not like that's a huge difference, but well, like college <laughs> changed a lot. Um, when you, so you would have gone in in the mid-90s, right? Right, exactly, where the, the web was still a, a just-birthed thing, and uh, web design was not really an occupation yet. And More of an oxymoron. <laughs> it's so true. Yeah, I never thought of it that way, but yes. I actually, I majored in interactive multimedia in college, and that would totally be web design today. But back then, that it just wasn't, if you said I have a degree in web design, no one would understand what you're talking about. Of course, yeah. now if you say I have a degree in interactive multimedia, no one knows what you're talking about. Yeah, well, the more things change, right? <laughs> but that that's a very uh, foresightful major for the mid to late 90s. When I went into journalism school, they were you still had your magazine track, your newspaper track, and your TV track. And those were the options. And then, you know, they started getting into, oh... Maybe there are different skills necessary to be a journalist on the internets. Well, um, to me, like any college that doesn't prepare you for everything you've just learned to change is failing. Yeah, they. I think they've done a good job with it since then. Um, well, I just so, mean like they, if you don't learn oh. the basic skills that you can continue to apply or use to learn new mediums, it seems like you did that just fine. Oh, yeah. I mean, it worked out. I, I, I haven't had to lay anything out in Quark recently. Uh, but the, you know, the, you know, making sure that you have your facts straight and that you can write clearly, um, those skills are universal. I didn't get the, the, you know, go into a place with a camera and a laptop and a boom mic and 20 minutes later, you've got your professionally edited video package that you did the whole thing yourself, part of it. <laughs> I feel like I missed the boat on that one, but... In terms of being able to put words together on the page, I do okay. Yeah, it's funny. I spent a lot of time in Quark in college, too. Interactive multimedia at that point still involved a lot of print design somehow. Well, yeah. it's not so, dead yet. One of the things that you, you listed as a, a potential topic for this episode was striving towards clarity and honesty and writing, which I feel applies very heavily to your work at The Wire Cutter and probably everything else you do. What what is it that you strive towards as far as that kind of clarity and and honesty? I mean, you you want to uh, want to respect the reader, obviously first and foremost. Um, and it's a it's a challenge when you're writing about c subjects that can be complicated to explain it in a way that is simple enough for people who haven't spent hundreds of hours thinking about something to understand while still, well, not dumbing it down so much that you insult, well, not ideally not dumbing it down at all, but not insulting the people who do know as much or more than I do about something. And just not assuming that the reader is phenomenally wealthy or has all the time in the world to research this stuff themselves, or even cares about stuff that enthusiasts care about like do you care whether you can overvolt the ram on this thing and get you know 
0.2% better results, or do you care that the uh, exhaust vent on this laptop uh, points directly at your mouse hand, and every time you use it, you're going to get a sweaty hand? That, to me, is the beauty of wire cutter reviews, because they tell me, they tell me as if I were talking to, like, uh, someone with an extreme fetish for this particular <laughs> type of product. They tell me what criteria it should be judged on and then judge them on that criteria. These are things that in most cases, if I need to consult the internet to find out why I should buy one product over another, those are usually the questions I have. Like, what what about this project product should I care about? I know what they put in the headline, but... Yeah, so I, I can see that. I also, I personally have always had trouble writing for a range of knowledge. And so when you say, you know, not dumbing it down, but still making it simple, that's a skill. It's I, tough. I applaud that. We, it, it's, it's a goal that we strive for, and I don't always achieve. Um, there's this thing uh, people talk about, like the curse of knowledge. You uh, the more time you spend thinking about and dealing with certain systems, you start to overestimate the amount of understanding that people have. Like even people who totally don't know anything about it, you think that they know more about it than you do. You get, you use jargon that you think that they ought to understand and they don't. Yeah. Um, I'm and this, very familiar with that phenomenon. <laughs> it is common. Uh, and it's something we have to constantly guard against. Um, we meaning, I mean, everybody that, at the wire cutter that I know, and I'm that, again, just speaking on a personal level, I think we'd all agree that, you know, finding that balance, cause you, you get deeper into something, you know, somebody's like, okay, well this was this article, this version of the article is good, but what about this, this, and this? And so the next time we go and update it, we, you know, we pay attention to those things. We're like, okay, yeah, you're right. That was a really good point because our readers are great. They are generally civil. They know a lot about stuff, often more than we do. And they'll comment like, hey, you know, there was a weakness in your article. Then we go look at that. And then we put the result of that in the next version of the article. But that means that we sort of go a little bit farther into the weeds than we did last time. And so maybe we keep these enthusiasts happy, but we lose, you know, some of the people who just want to get in, get the product recommendation and get out. So it's a constant balance. And our, our pieces have ballooned in word count over the past five years, um, <laughs> often for the better. Like at the beginning, it was very much, hey, buy this thing. Trust me, it's great. And now it's buy this thing. No, seriously, here's why it's great. Um, yeah. I, um, I recently got into yoga. Ooh. And I ended up having to research yoga mats pretty extensively because I knew the one I got from target was not working for me. And so like, I, 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 uh, I assigned some money in my budget to get a good yoga mat. And fortunately, so you, the, the wire cutter put out a, a yoga mat, the best yoga mats post. Yeah. The sweet after, home, our, our sister site. This is on the wire cutter. It's on the wire cutter. Yeah. Hmm. It came out December 7th on the wire cutter, unless you cross post. Uh, let me check on that. Anyway, <laughs> it, that's irrelevant it does, to the it main does point. Seem, it, I was surprised to see it in the wire cutter homepage, but I am super excited that I did actually buy the runner up 
Matt, I didn't get the top pick, but at least I was on the list. It's a good feeling, isn't it? It is. Because I'm serious. I do trust these reviews, which leads to the second part of this, honesty and writing. How do you how do you define honesty when it comes to writing reviews? Well, I mean, there's the there's the table stakes, the absolute base level that you have to have, which is that you are fairly and accurately representing things. You're giving them a fair shake and you're not influenced by outside things like, you know, does this company advertise with us? Do we have a relationship with them? Like, does, do I know the CEO or whatever? Like just your basic level, any, any review site has this, you know, and then the, but saying what we mean to say, not being sloppy with language such that things could be misinterpreted. That's a big part of honesty, whether you like intentional or not, you just want to be, make sure what people are hearing is what you're saying. And, um, getting three quarters of the way through a really long sentence and forgetting where you're going with it. That's a big part of it too. Um, I think that's more part of the clarity and writing thing. Yeah. So, so right. It turns out writing and talking are different skills. They do tend to be. Well, uh, and, okay. So jumping back a quick question, yes. would you agree that when writing on the internet versus writing in print, you tend to take a more conversational style? Yeah, for sure. Um, at least in my experience, when I was writing for print, you have print word counts. And so you've got to be concise and you've really just got to hit the highlights. And most print uh, outlets have a, you know, they've got a particular tone, which isn't to say that, you know, the wire cutter or, you know, your blog or Twitter doesn't have a particular tone as well. But the, the web is, yeah, it's a lot more informal and you can be more conversational and people... It, it, we write the way we would want to read. Because, yeah. 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 Well, like in my conversation experience, with a friend, yeah, working with like Tua and Engadget, that there were very specific, um, like the 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 style guide would be to write conversationally, write the way you would talk, but without all the um, <laughs> like colloquialisms and perhaps improper grammar. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so so uh, the the half of this that I'm really interested in is the the ethical part where you're not influenced by advertisers or you're not doing paid reviews because it's it's not fair to say that all review sites are ethical in that way and the ones that aren't quickly die. The way a review site survives is to garner trust from the readers. Absolutely. You get and one shot at a reputation. Totally. And, and one mistake topples it. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, I mean, this isn't some mystical science that I'm, I'm saying, oh, this is how we're different from everybody else. No, there are a lot of great review sites out there. And like you say, the ones that aren't great, they don't last because you screw up once and you lose people, as you should. I, I have seen very popular bloggers become pariahs because of one you know, scandal and the scandal amounts to, Oh, I took money for a review or I didn't properly disclose an advertising connection. Yeah. Do you guys have a, if, if someone, if a product you're reviewing is also an advertiser on even like New York times, 
Do you have a standard disclosure statement that you make? Now we're getting into stuff that I can't really speak on in terms of the way things will go with the times, because I don't know, but we, I mean, we, uh, the wire cutter obviously has, we have our affiliate policy and we have our review policy. Everything is very clearly laid out. You know, as far as advertising, I don't know who advertises that's dealt with. That's a totally different department of the site. It has no contact with editorial at all. Um, as a, as a subsidiary of the times, when you start writing, is there a very specific like code of ethics you have to follow? Yeah, there's a Times ethics policy. Um, we've we've had our own ethics policy for a long time. The Times has their standard ethics policies against you know um, undue influence and paid access and gifts from uh, advertise or gifts from product uh, vendors and stuff such like that. Well, let's talk about review units then. Do you sure. in in these reviews? Do you do you receive? review units? Yes. Yeah, so usually what happens is we get something in, uh, if there's something that we've determined we need to test, we always, we do it in a different way than many companies probably. Um, a lot of places that I've seen in the past, you know, companies send you stuff, you review it or you don't and you send it back. Um, but here we proactively identify the models that we want to review. And then we call them in and if we can get them from the vendor, we do. And uh, we have a loan agreement and we send it back afterwards. And if we can't get it from the vendor, we will buy it and then donate it. Yeah. Yeah, that's been my experience. Uh, Mostly the places I've worked, even when they send review units, you basically have to give them away to, to readers randomly just because they're not, especially because mostly what I review is software. And especially since the dawn of the Mac app store, you get a promo code from a vendor and you can't give that away once you've used it. Yeah. Like you can't transfer that. So that has blurred ethical lines for me. If I use if I use anything that I review, if I use it after the review, I will buy it. But it's weird that I can't, in those cases, return or share the license that I've gotten out of that. Way easier with hardware, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I had to coordinate donating two standing desks to a local nonprofit and... Those are hard to get rid of, surprisingly. They're great pieces of <laughs> hardware, but like they're big. Somebody had to show up yeah, with a Chevy and, Tahoe and we had to take the legs off. Don't, yeah, most people don't show up at Goodwill looking for standing desks. Yeah, exactly. At least not where I live, but I I I would bet that in San Francisco Goodwill probably has standing desks. They probably do, and air on <laughs> chairs and what have you. I don't know. I haven't been I haven't been to San Francisco in a little bit. <laughs> I haven't either. Ever since I stopped writing for San Francisco-based blogs, no one flies me out to Macworld. Oh, Macworld's gone. That's why I don't go to San Francisco anymore. Yeah, no more Macworld. And no one flies me to WWDC. Huh. I miss San Francisco. Okay. I do, too. Did you used to live there? No. No. <laughs> I, the, one of the reasons I left my job at my last employer was they wanted me to move to San Francisco. And even though they offered to double my, 
my pay. It's not enough. It's still, I, I live in Minnesota, man. If you double what I'm making, I still can't, I still can't enjoy the lifestyle I have here in San Francisco. Yeah, I mean, you're preaching to the choir. My wife and I moved from the Bay Area to uh, Houston, Texas about four years ago. And yeah, obviously we don't make as much money as we would in San Francisco, but it goes a lot farther here. What, what kills me is that remote workers in just about every company are subject to the Midwest tax, <laughs> which is essentially just if they see that you live in the middle of the country, top to bottom, they automatically dock their offers, salary offers by almost 50%, which makes sense. It does, but like your cost of living is that much lower, but I would really love a loophole where I could make New York money living in Minnesota, which I will admit there have been times I have done that. Somehow money doesn't matter to me if I don't like a job though. I won't work places I don't enjoy. Yeah, thus, I mean that's a that's thus, a tremendous. I am privilege. now an independent <laughs> an independent developer. I think that's my my fate. So well, yeah. it happens to a lot of people. Ethics, but I mean we're fortunate to be able to make a living remotely. Oh, absolutely. And to have the freedom to choose, you know, not to work a job that we don't love. There's a, a product hunt list in, uh, I, I published it in my last web excursions post where I like, I don't know, I don't like link posts. So I just, once a week I do like a list of things that I like on uh, brettterpshire.com. And one of the one, one of the things I linked was a product hunt list of apps for finding remote jobs. Com- oh, cool. uh, like compilations of companies that will accept remote jobs and apps that find them. And yeah, I, I never plan to take an office job again. I don't mind traveling a few times for, you know, board. Every company I've worked for has had some kind of once or twice a year thing where the employees get together. Yeah. But I, I've been a remote worker for geez over a decade almost 20 years i think i don't know how old am i 38 how do you, how do you not go crazy because i've been doing it for four years Wirecutter is mostly remote and i i kind of go a little stir crazy sometimes i don't see a lot of people oh see i'm extremely introverted i i flourish <laughs> i flourish when i have like two days of nobody talking to me in person huh. that is really easy for me i if i did not have that aspect of my personality i don't know if i could do the job but for me like chatting on irc for a little bit i'm good that's my social interaction or doing a podcast once a week yeah i podcast to stay in touch with friends that's practically the only reason i do it so hey let's talk about that like that? Do you like that segue? <laughs> uh, that w- it was brilliant. I couldn't have done it better myself. So, you have a podcast, Lizard People, dear readers. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a little bit on a hiatus right now. Uh, I mean, it's a lot on hiatus, but <laughs> hopefully for not that much longer. Um, How long has it been? Uh, we posted our last episode in 
I think just a few months ago, but we recorded it in May. Um, yeah, that's about where my other podcast overtired is right now. And we've got one that we just need to edit and put up, um, and then we're gonna we're gonna start doing it again because we all miss it. But it's a brave new world now, and we're trying to figure out how best to go about it. So, Lizard People, dear readers, is um, it's a science fiction and fantasy book club uh, that I do with two of my buddies um, from college and before. And uh, we basically just started doing it because we were doing a book club together anyway and discussing it first on like Google Chat. And then we were doing it on Hangouts. And we're like, well, as long as we're calling each other, we might as well record it. The worst that can happen is nobody's interested. And even if so, we're not losing anything by doing it. Somebody might be interested. Um, so, yeah, we do that. Um, we talk about books sci-fi fiction or sci-fi and fantasy every other podcast and then every other one is just general pop culture stuff that we're into we're geeking out about that's what overtired is too essentially so we've both been on hiatus from the same kind of yeah things i guess the reason overtired has been on hiatus was both because of ugliness in my own life and ugliness in the world in general and i suddenly i wanted to wait until things had settled yeah before i spent time talking about them yeah that makes a lot of sense things got ugly all around they they did a little ugly so what is uh what is the future then of the uh uh lizard people dear readers podcast well we're still figuring that out but i think a big part of it is not reading books we don't like um so the way we would do it before is we would, one of us would pick a book, we would announce that book on the podcast, we would discuss it a couple episodes later, then we would pick another book and discuss it a couple episodes later. But there were two or three books that were just such stinkers that we didn't want to talk about them. And some of them I didn't even, we didn't even finish, like just like threw in the towel, this is not worth the effort. And so I think we want to, you know, try to find a way to read books that are not bad would be good. Um, but also, also, I mean, speaking frankly, my podcast is three 30 something cishet white dudes from the Midwest and science fiction is often overwhelmingly written for and by straight white men. And when you get outside of that, I mean, that, that's, that's the, I should say that's the old stereotype and, there's a presently a flourishing of amazing science fiction being written by uh, people of color and women and queer writers and all that. And so it would be really easy for us to just do, you know, your, your standard uh, slab rock meat, uh, punch him up, white dude saves the day sci-fi. But like, there's a lot of, a lot of interesting and great and mind blowing stuff you never get to if you don't, if you just stick with what's easy and comfortable. So I think probably reading stuff that's says stuff about the world and is more interesting and is challenging rather than just junk food is probably the direction that I want to take it more. We've done a pretty good job of that. I think Um, my, one of my favorite books that we read was the Xenogenesis trilogy by Octavia Butler. Um, But yeah, that feels like amplifying 
works by, you know, women and people of color that rather than just reading a bunch of old white dudes who wish it was still the 50s is probably the way to go in this modern era. Feels right to me. I think that's the point of sci-fi that may have been lost. But, I mean, if you go back to, like, the Martian Chronicles, Ray Bradbury. Yeah. Sci-fi was a way to, well, even, like, the original Star Trek. Like, it was a way to comment on current society in a way that people could more uh, readily attach to. Yeah. Because they didn't want to admit things about present society, but in the context of a future world or a future universe, it was yeah. more more palatable. And there's really good sci-fi almost always has social commentary. Oh, absolutely. And the, this this idea that the the you know the the puppies have uh, that you know keep your social justice out of science fiction is just so. <laughs> absurd on its face what is this term puppies you just used oh boy uh so the sad puppies and the rabid puppies were organized groups of uh basically reactionary dudes who um got upset at the increasing diversity of science fiction and specifically the science fiction um, hugo awards and so they for the past few years they have basically ballot stuffed they've stuffed the nominations for all the hugo awards and uh tried to get their favored writers um nominated and push out you know the actual talented writers um who happen to usually be women of color you know that sort of thing so, so this, uh, they, this is gamergate for books it is yes it's gamergate for books um <laughs> a lot of overlap you may not be surprised um it's the same people and the same kind of people. And they've failed pretty spectacularly in the sense that I think it was two years ago, most of the, most of the um, awards in which they had sort of seized all the nominations, the, the panel or the voters voted to uh, give no award <laughs> instead. And so they, they, they put up a show. I think I was a little out of it last year cause I was busy trying to raise a squalling infant, um, but they were less effective last year than the year before. Um, and last year, N.K. Jemisin's The Fifth Season won, um, and that was a really great book, and I hope that it gave uh, the puppies aneurysms. <laughs> or, sorry, uh, broadened perspectives and increased empathy. <laughs> Which for them would probably be the same thing. Right. Judging by what I know of Gamergate participants members is that yeah i don't know what to call that you, you watch out they're gonna brigade like though they're they're upset come they'll, at me they'll find you come at me yeah um so all right this is this is kind of fascinating actually not just the discussion of sci-fi but the uh the book club in general i i i want to see this um want to see it continue and really uh focus on Diversity to the point where you do give people aneurysms. I mean, audio aneurysms, that'd be a good thing. <laughs> I mean, bad thing, but you know. Aural, aural aneurysm. Yeah. All right. So that we're, we're close to time for the top three picks. 
I'm kind of curious about uh, you have like there's like five topics left on our list, <laughs> and I'm gonna I'm gonna pick one that we can get through quickly. Let's see. All right, so this one combines three intriguing topics to me. You you say that you're currently fooling yourself into thinking that you have time for TV or video games now that you have a toddler. Yes. How 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 old is your child? Uh 18 months. So. I don't understand. That's um that's like a year and a half. That's sorry, yes, that's a year and a half. Um to, to non-parents, that's a year and a half. Yeah, to non-parents it's a year and a half. I think I don't know what the cutoff is for thinking in years instead of months, but I feel like it's three or four maybe. Seems like it, yeah. I don't know. I haven't hit it yet. Anyway. So this is let's see, a year and a half. the only reason I know anything about what kids are like at anything between ages zero and four is because I now have four nieces and I, I see them every once in a while. Um, what is, what is that age? Like, uh, as far as cognitive development, what are we talking about? Well, I mean, that's the whole range, uh, zero to 18 months, 18 months specifically. I mean, there's a wide range of like what's normal at 18 months. Some kids aren't walking. Some kids aren't talking. Some kids are talking in complete sentences and, I don't know, climbing the walls. Uh, mine is doing like two word phrases is her new thing and uh, throwing food. Well, that's, that's, that's an old favorite. Um, but like, it's about the age where they start realizing that they have some agency in the world. And if they kick up a fuss, <laughs> maybe they don't have to go to bed. Or if they refuse to eat something, maybe they get to eat something different. And so they're testing, they're, it's a lot of testing their own personhood and their own agency in the world, uh, which is amazing to watch and less amazing at one in the morning when she decides it's not bedtime anymore. Yeah, see, I could find that extremely intriguing as someone who's been clo like extremely exposed to the world of animal behavior. I could find that scientifically interesting. It's amazing. You are watching. <laughs> it's self-assembling code. It's like watch a com watching a computer boot up, write its own assembly code, and then like just start teaching itself how to do stuff. Like they are everything they're doing. They're doing through observation and experimentation. They're they're assembling a model of how the world works based on what they see. They're assembling their own model of language. Like, it's not like there's, like, a bunch of blank spaces in their brain that you just slot the verbs and nouns into. They have to figure out syntax. They figure out, like, well, what a language is. What Watching them with symbols is amazing. Like, once, once a kid gets an idea of a lion, like, then a cartoon of a lion, they somehow know... It, somehow that a cartoon of a lion and a stick figure drawing of a lion and a picture of a lion and a video of a lion and the word lion are all the same thing. And like we, t obviously we take that for granted, but like, it's not a, like, it's clearly not a tiger dad. It's a lion. I, okay. It's hilarious to me that you and I both seem to equate 
uh, childhood development to machine learning and artificial intelligence, <laughs> except for the the real thing. I mean, it's not. So, so I was reading a thing recently where um, thinking of artificial intelligence or thinking of brains as computers is actually a pretty bad way to go about it, and it gets us thinking in ways that are not helpful because brains are not computers. There's there's analogies there, but sure. But thinking of computers, the future of computing in sense of the human brain, that's actually intriguing. Yeah, I mean, there's with like neural nets and uh, mm -hmm. machine learning and that kind of thing. Yeah, it's I think brains are more applicable maybe to computers than computers are to brains, at least the current way we think about computers. But yeah, it's we use the analogies that are available to us. And I happen to spend a lot of we both spend a lot of our time thinking about computer stuff. <laughs> All right. So dragging this back. Yes, you're, you're a father of of a child who is currently going through probably like extreme, extremely fast development. You find a lot of your time dedicated to taking care of the things that occur because of this development. Yes. Do you find yourself happy with the um, distraction from the things that you used to distract yourself with? Yeah, overall, overwhelmingly, yes. Like, there is nothing in Fallout 4 that is as good as hearing your kid say, Papa! <laughs> like, there's... I want to believe you, but I got a vasectomy <laughs> because I don't want to believe you. <laughs> I'm not saying that for everybody, everybody should have a toddler and nobody should play video games. That's absolutely <laughs> not what I'm saying. Ideally, I would like both of these things and some people should you know i absolutely respect um not having kids not wanting kids but See, i think i think my problem is that i don't even play video games i mm. my the quote closest equivalent i can think of is that i enjoy writing regular expressions to handle string mangling so what do you do to unwind that's what i do I write regular expressions. That's I, I feel like that personality, <laughs> that description of a personality in of in and of itself means that it's probably smart that I don't have kids. Although they would they would be really creative kids. Yeah. If I were to. Right. Not because of my genetics, but because of, <laughs> because of what I would expose them to at a very young age. So this is what a period means in a regular expression versus grammatical syntax. Hmm. Yeah. How does this relate to Elmo, though? I would have to consider that for a while. Yeah, I don't it, have an answer. Is Elmo still relevant? Isn't it like... I think Dora's even irrelevant now. What's the current? You know, to be honest, I don't know. I would say that, you know, we have a no TV policy. We have been known to put on the, you know, a cartoon or a nature documentary because sometimes you need to. But, like, I don't know what the kids are watching these days. <laughs> so what do you do? What do you do for enrichment when when you absolutely need to leave a child with something to entertain them while you get some sanity? Uh, you wait till they fall asleep. No. Um, 
<laughs> no, uh, I mean, at this age, playing with physical objects is big. Um, sometimes she'll read herself a book, uh, by which I mean she will take the book and babble in the same tone of voice that we use when we read that particular page. It's remarkable. Like, she doesn't, she's not saying the words, but if we're at the page with the, the lion on it and I go, and then the lion said, hello, then she'll go, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> <laughs> like, Indicating that she has uh, thoughts that she can't currently put into words. Yeah, or she, she's, she's like, well, there's got to be some reason that he always says these words with the same inflection every time. So if I can puzzle this out, you know, that, going, going I, back I, to I'm, the thing. It's weird for me to say it, but I am actually really fascinated by that. That, that would be my justification for having a child is just it's too, so um, rewarding. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> like watching her stack blocks and figure out that you put the small, the big ones on the bottom and the small ones on the top and you can stack them higher than if you do it the other way. See, Just that's, like, I would love that. Who needs I would, TV? I'd be sitting there taking notes going, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I get that part. But then it's they cool. grow up. What happens then? This is your uh, first kid, right? Yeah, I haven't gotten there yet. Um, I assume that... They keep growing in amazing ways, and there are things that are hard, and there are things that are delightful, and there are things that make you want to, uh, you know, ship off and join the Navy. Um, <laughs> According to one of my, my favorite artists from Minnesota, uh, Dessa, she was raised by two lawyers, and if she presented as a teenager... Uh, a a a case basically. If she wanted to extend curfew for a night, she would have to present a case. And if she presented a proper case, you know, with with good precedent and arguments, <laughs> she could extend her curfew. And to me, that that even that development, like my biggest fear about having a kid, would be teen years. But like that kind of thing. Plus, she turned out to be an amazing lyricist and and musical artist. So I could enjoy that part. Yeah, I mean, I, people talk a lot about the teen years. Like, oh, just you wait till they're teens. You know, especially if you got daughters, you're going to be on the front porch with a shotgun. And I'm like, well, okay, thanks for that cool ancient gender role <laughs> misogynist nonsense. Uh, really cool. Um but like they're, it's, they're becoming people. It's like, I mean, not that they're not people already, but like they're figuring out who they are. They're going to do stupid things because their brains aren't cooked yet. Let's be honest. They're not people yet. They're life people in training. At, life begins at 18. <laughs> I think life begins at like four or five. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm not. <laughs> I, I definitely think there's a certain amount of... Um, uh, prerequisite for humanity which is developed during the first few years it's like an undergrad program you got like four years of undergrad study and then you become like you head towards ma your master degree right and honestly i only did undergrad so i don't oddly, know maybe i'm not human yet oddly enough i think i think my master degree happened at seven 
Like, seven is the first age I actually remember things from. Other than just brief, like, olfactory yeah. snippets. Yeah. But, um, but, yeah, like, seven years old, that was the year that... I clearly remember that year of my life. That was like graduating from a, a, a graduate, like a master's degree right there. I've heard it theorized that people don't, you don't really start laying down permanent memories until your sense of language is strong enough. Like there's something about language that impacts the way we remember things that, and how yeah. well we remember them. Like we, 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 our brain encodes things in language in some sense rather than just in like... That's um, a whole fascinating feelings. topic to me. Oh, dude, it's it's one of those things that I'm completely not qualified to talk about at all. But like, just the everything I've read about advances in you know neurology, what we're learning about the way our brains work, it's just whatever you read like in biology class, completely wrong, completely superseded. Whatever you've read since then in your popular you know popular science or whatever is probably wrong too. It's so interesting. I am a huge fan of things being wrong. Like event like five years later. If 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 five years later, who said if you if five years later you don't hate your work, you're you're not growing. I don't know, but they're they're onto something. I mean I've definitely looked back at stuff from five years ago and been like, Oh, that was a fun turn of phrase. But <laughs> structurally it could use some work. All right. So we should switch now to the top three picks. Yes. This goes round robin one at a time. All right. And you get to go first. All right. Uh, my first pick is something I've been sort of in love with for a few months now. It is my cheap $60 Amazon mechanical keyboard. It is a Kisan Magic Force 68. It's like one of the cheapest keyboards you can get with good switches and it's smaller than a 10 key list. It's only got 68 keys, so it's got your normal keyboard row, and it's got the arrow keys, and then insert, delete, page up, page down. It's got no function row, no number pad. It's small, compact. The default keycaps it comes with are horrendous, but you can get replacement ones that are really cool. It's got a backlight. I love it. How do you spell uh, Kisan? Q I. S-A-N. It might be Chisan. I don't know. Q-I-S-A-N. I'm, I'm looking this up right now. Magic Force 68. And they sell it in a bunch of configurations, different kinds of backlights, different key, different key switches, which you've, if you've never gone down the mechanical keyboard switch rabbit hole, it's, oh, a, <laughs> it's a doozy. All right, all right. So I got the Gateron Browns, uh, which I quite like. Um, I find them smooth and brown, like a cherry brown, but a little bit smoother uh, and cheaper. Wait, so, okay, they're not cherry browns, what are they? They're Gateron browns. Um, oh, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, So the patents on cherry uh, key switches, the best known mechanical key switches, uh, expired about two, three years ago, and since then there's probably a half a dozen companies that at least that make clones, uh, often imitating the like the, the, the styles and colors and naming schemes of the cherries, but also often some of them go off in weird directions of their own as well. Yeah. I, uh, I bought from um, Mass Drop, I got a switch tester. Yeah. 
and it had, you know, like cherry blue, cherry red, and then it had a bunch of Gateron switches. And I do think, after trying them all, I do think the Gateron Browns were my favorite. I should note that I have almost a thousand dollars worth of mechanical keyboards here because I just keep trying and so somehow always end up back with my low profile like apple aluminum keyboards and older uh um uh who made the slim logitech older logitech keyboards they're they're low profile ones i just have never been able to fully commit to a mechanical keyboard so you've what what which ones have you tried? What kind of switches have you tried? Because like there's a lot that are you might be interested in. Have you tried a Topre keyboard at all? I haven't. Um, no. I I have a a DOS keyboard, a couple of Matthias keyboards. Um, I have a uh, Ergo Docs keyboard that oh, I wow. put three sets of switches in. And 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 as far as typing goes, it. I do prefer it. The problem for me is finding my muscle memory is so dedicated to what is essentially like the consistent MacBook keyboard layout for the last six years or so. Yeah. It's even 10 years. Like learning to deal with a function key on my right hand as opposed to my left hand kills like i just find myself unable to transition and i haven't been able to give it long enough to retrain my muscle memory Mm. and that's why i have so many is i love i love mechanical keyboards i love the feel of it i love i love the nerdiness of finding the right switch for me just haven't really been able to dedicate to it so there is a Mac OS app called Carabiner that lets oh. you remap. <laughs> oh, you know it? Okay. Believe All right. Me. I, uh, so there was a, a post a long time ago about the hyper key. And it was a way to turn the caps lock key on a Mac keyboard into um, a combination of control, option, command, and shift which opened up like whole new keyboard shortcuts that were just not convenient to use otherwise. Yeah. And once I get into that, because I've never used a caps lock key for what it was intended. Um, once I get into that carabiner, I kind of went nuts with that. So yeah, I spent a lot <laughs> okay. of time with carabiner and PC keyboard hack also known as sale now. S E I L. But yeah, Yes, I do know what you're talking about. All right, all right. Because I was going to say, because you can move the function key wherever you want it. Right. Well, and with the Ergo Docs, it's got a, a little Arduino built in, a Teensy controller. Yeah. And you can make those keys do anything you want. You can have, you can assign a key to like shift through six different layers of key sets. And I spent oh, days, <laughs> spent like cumulatively probably a hundred hours like trying to define the perfect keyboard and ergonomically it was beautiful key wise it was beautiful i put all custom keycaps on it and still something about my stubborn muscle memory still made it hard to 
dedicate to despite the expense and time expense I put into it. I am so interested in the ergodox. I just keep resisting. Um, so what do you use? Uh, the key sound is what you use. Like, yeah, it's a it's a 65% keyboard. So yeah, it's it's cut yeah. down compared to a 10 keyless, uh, which is better ergonomics because your mouse hand is closer to the keyboard hand. Um, and I love it. It's not it's not my end game keyboard probably. Uh, there's a couple couple DIY kits that I'm waiting to go back on Masterop. Um, but I, I may have gone a little far down that rabbit hole. I've got like three or four aftermarket keycap sets. And yeah. so you're a Masterop fan too. I am. I've used it for probably like five or six things. I'm not, I don't go all in on it. There's, there's sometimes you're just waiting a long time to save $5, (laughs) which I don't love. But in terms of being able to get a group buy going where, you know, a bunch of enthusiasts front the money and the company makes it for them. uh, I think it's been great. I think I, I use it kind of like wire cutter. (laughs) <laughs> because the people who really are dedicated enough to get a a group buy going, they know what they're talking about with any given product area. And yeah. even if even if the group buy doesn't work out, I learn a lot about what's like ideal within a uh a genre. And yeah. I've actually uh, I'm up to my second mass drop like uh what are they? I forget what they're called. Goodie bag kind of thing. You get enough people to sign up with an affiliate link. Oh yeah, they, yeah. They send you a whole bunch of. That's actually how I got the keyboard, the key tester. Oh nice. It just came with a a mass drop goodie bag. I love mass drop. Okay. All <laughs> right. Okay. So so the I'm gonna need you to send me a link to the Kisan keyboard, Kisan four sixty eight because. I'm getting weird results on Amazon. Oh, it's a, it's right Magic Force 68. Do you think that'll um, make a difference? Probably. Let me see. Uh, I'm going to have to mute my mic to type. <laughs> Magic Force 68. Ah, yeah, okay. I got a 65% gaming keyboard. 60%. Yeah, 60, 65 I think technically they call 65 if it's got an arrow key pad and 60 if it doesn't. What, how, if a keyboard doesn't have the arrow key pad, what is it assigned for arrow keys? WSD uh, or? Usually uh, keyboards smaller than 60% are um, usually have a lot of programmability built in. So yeah, it's a function layer on WASD. Yeah. Yeah. And JKLI or. Yeah, if you yeah, if you'd like, yeah, a lot of them do it that way. I just need the the actual arrow keys. Yeah, I I do like arrow keys, which is why the Magic Keyboard, the new Magic Keyboard from Apple, has killed me, because they turned the arrow. Have you seen this? They made the uh, the left and right on the uh, arrow pad full height, and then the up and down half height, oh. so it creates a rectangle. But I don't have feeling in my thumb, first finger, and middle finger on my right hand. So I can't, with these tiny little keys in the middle, I can't tell what the up key is. It is constantly, I'm making, currently making a dedicated effort to start using this magic keyboard. But that is 
that is a prime reason for me to switch to a mechanical keyboard with nice big chunky arrow keys you could get like a a little arrow key pad or something hang <laughs> off the edge by a usb yeah but that's so Silly. i would have to move my wrist every time i wanted to yeah yeah it's not ideal i'll figure it out eventually i should learn to use the arrow keys with my pinky ring and middle fingers because i can feel with my ring finger huh feels like there's a story there (laughs) maybe a pamphlet or a brochure (laughs) Mm. oh pete tong reference i never get to do those you ever see that movie it's all gone pete tong uh i have not find it it's so worth it all right so okay my Not first pick then. Yes. Um, I'm going to go. My first pick will be an app for iPhone. I don't know if it's, a, if it's available on anything else, but uh, it's called Cosmic Watch. And it is kind of an amazing, not totally like um, practical, but amazing universe. I, I, all right. So here's what it does it gives you your current time but it does it shows you a a globe much the way like google earth would and you can then see not only your time but you can jump around to locations on the globe see the time there but it also shows you like the uh constellations that would be overhead for any part of the world and it'll show you can switch to like um an astrological chart that'll Ooh. show you everything. But then you can see the position of the planets around the earth at any given time. And from any given location, what's going to be around you. So it's kind of a combination of a multi time zone clock and a whole star watching kind of setup. And it's beautiful. It's really well done. Well, it is on Android, so I'm going to check this out. Oh, nice. Okay, I will have to link yeah. that as well then. Um, for us peons on Android. I, yeah, I, I'm, I assume you have very good reasons for using an Android phone. We won't get into it right now, but I am not. Spite was a big one. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a joke, but it's partially a joke. But I had, I had the first iPhone. Um, and then when updates came out, I think what killed me was when the three, the iPhone three got copy and paste and MMS, and there was no technical reason why the one could not have it. They just chose not to do that um, yeah. to try to get people to update. I, uh, I went on a, I, I spite switched is what I did. <laughs> I spite switched to Android and I have not gone back. I'm not, I'm, I'm not unfamiliar with this. I've seen many people over the years just because the, the, the Apple diehards will say, oh, they'll fix it in post and they'll wait and they will assume it'll fix it. And these are people that are automatically going to upgrade every year anyway. And yeah. then there are the people that are just like, you know, there are other options. Let's try it out. I'm not sure that the first Android phone that I went to from iPhone was an improvement. But now I think they hold they hold pretty well. Uh, they're pretty comparable on the high end. I I, I trust you. I <laughs> have had to for the purpose of testing 
web development as things got more and more fractured as far as screen sizes and operating systems. I have had to have a lot of Android devices around. I have never found any of them easy to pick up. I'm sure if I got used to the various like menu and operating system kind of configurations, I would find them more useful. But thus it's far, baby. it's been kind of fragmented, I think, is, yeah. is a great word for it. Yeah, it's baby duck syndrome, partially, right? You, you, we, we like what's familiar to us. We, we imprint on an operating system and... Or, you know, or a us. keyboard we're used to. Or a, yeah, or a keyboard, exactly. Um, <laughs> turns out we're not all that great with change as a species. Um, <laughs> turns out. Because it means a lion might eat us. Um, but, yeah. It's, and, and Android is quite fragmented. It's, it's one of those things where, like, you can get a great experience on Android. Or you could have a bunch of really bad ones. Whereas so, with an iPhone, you pretty much know what you're going to get a good experience. Yeah, I I think that's kind of the reason that people who pick up an iPhone or iOS or even Mac OS, like, oh, everything makes sense now. The hardest (laughs) thing when I'm when I'm helping people switch to a a Mac OS or iOS environment, the hardest thing is getting them to realize that to to make something work, you just do what you think it should do. You just drag it where you you drag the thing you think you want to use into the thing you want it to to use it and it'll just work which in general is true anyway i (laughs) even even i would be curious about your reaction to cosmic watch on android but i assume because it has no specific uh no os specific features in it i imagine it's quite the same it's it's pretty cool though it looks really nice. All right, so what's your second pick? Uh, my second pick is Strong Lifts 5x5. Five five. Uh, so after reading um, a column called Ask a Swole Woman by a colleague of mine, Casey Johnson, she writes it on the hairpin about basically getting into lifting and strength training, which I've never done in my life. I have now started uh, lifting small amounts of weights, which will eventually become large amounts of weights. Uh, and it turns out it makes your brain feel better to do this. <laughs> Physical activity um, can also can often improve your mental state, which I feel like somebody should have told me before. People keep recommending the book Spark to me. Spark. I'm just going to mention that as a side note. So, uh, okay. Yes, Spark. Strong lift 5x5, five five, though. Continue with, with your explanation, please. Okay, so, I mean, Strong Lift 5x5, five five, it's a lifting program... Um, I think by a Belgian guy and the basic thesis, which is not unheard of at all, is that the best way to build strength is to lift heavy things. And the best way to lift heavy things is to do barbell exercises because they use your whole body. Basically, whatever's not actively lifting is stabilizing and balancing and so forth. Um, And so you do, um, you know, three exercises uh, five sets of five for like squats. So five sets of five squats, five sets of five deadlifts, five sets of five overhead presses, for example. And then there's another workout that you do two days later that's squats and then two other things. And you add weight every time and you get stronger. And it seems to work really well to get people from like noodly, wimpy desk beings like me to like big, 
hunky, powerful people or strong people, not like comically overbuilt. <laughs> yeah. Which you can do too. Oh, sure. Um, so as, as somebody who's completely new to strength training, um, I did swimming in high school, but no like lifting weights or anything. It's, it's been very, it's very easy to pick up as a beginner. Um, and seems to give good results. I've talked to people who've used it for a year and are now, you know, squatting 400 pounds or whatever. And people that have used it for two months and are doing, you know, 100, 150 pounds. Uh, people like me who have done it for two weeks and are at like 65 pounds on the squat, which is not a lot, but it's more than I did last time. Nice. I, I don't know if you, if you saw it, but, uh, Episode 179, and the beginning of December of this podcast, I had a strength trainer on. And I'm actually currently working with a strength trainer, not for my strength, but on a uh, an application. But yeah, no, this is this is kind of a fascin- fascinating topic to me. The thing that I've I've learned from doing yoga that I didn't expect to was exactly what you said about how when you're focusing on one area of strength, the other parts of your body that are supporting that also strengthen. That's kind of, um, I don't know. It's almost, you could look at it as Zen or just biology, physics, biomechanics. Yeah. 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 And it's really interesting. There, there is a relationship between, physical activity and mood, at least in me and in a lot of people that I know that have found it, you know, doing yoga or lifting weights or running makes them feel better, you know, gives them clearer head, more discipline, more energy, that kind of stuff. And I feel like as somebody who was the, the nerdy kid in high school, it's like, I'm exercising my mind. Thank you. It turns out you can do both. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know? so, um, there's yeah. a there's a post on my blog that I'll link about how exercise and yoga ended up helping me tremendously with my ADHD. Oh, see, that's that's interesting to me as well, um, as I have that and have not been medicated for it for a long time. So anything that helps me with an attention span is really good. Yeah, well, and I feel like any exercise is probably great for it. Yoga was what... Yoga was an easy thing for me to do in the morning. It starts slow. It gets harder. You know, you work up a sweat. You get your exercise. And then I would find that my brain would work for hours afterward without medication. But that's a, that's a whole saga on its own. But, uh, but yeah, I'll, I'll send you a link to that. Awesome, yeah. Relatively short post of mine. Um, yeah. And then every time I say that, people recommend Spark, which I haven't read yet. I have not read that. Uh, who wrote that one? That sounds it sounds familiar. Oh, let's see. Your keyboard is so quiet, I can barely hear it. I've been <laughs> muting my mic every time I have to type. I get a lot of crap. Low-profile uh, keyboard with a with a cast. towel underneath it for nice. absorbency. Uh, let's see. Spark the revolutionary new science of exercise in the brain by John J. Rady, M.D. Hmm. With Eric Hagerman. Hagerman. We'll have to add that to my long, long list of uh, 
books that I need to read. That's exactly why I haven't gotten to it yet. It is coming up towards the top of that list of books I have not even purchased yet. All so right. it's almost it's almost on the pile of good intentions. Exactly. All right, so my second pick is the Tile Slim. I've never owned a Ooh. tile before. The uh, the Bluetooth locator for physical objects, but then I found the Tile Slim, and I actually bought a four pack with two tiles and a, two Tile Slims. And okay, so confession: I still use an e-cig. I, I never really considered it a way to quit smoking. It was just a way to not kill my lungs while smoking. Sure, yeah. So I also tend to lose this e-cig pretty frequently. And when you've got a nicotine dependency, that's a problem. It is a problem, and it annoys the people around you. Hey, have you seen my e-cig? Especially when (laughs) that happens, like, every day. Um, Hypothetically. Yeah, so these tile slims are actually a perfect size to fit into my two-battery mod case. And I can just slip it in under the rubber cover I keep over it. And now when I lose it, I can just use my Apple Watch and hit a button and it rings and I can find it. And I never have to ask or annoy anybody about it. That's marvelous. This has. I also have one on my keys, which I don't lose as often. But when I do, that's it. Plus, from my e-cig, I can double tap it and it'll find my phone for me. So, hey. That's really handy. My <laughs> wife uh, uses... Uh, her phone's okay Google. No, you can now that that triggered my phone. Um, now my phone is Googling that triggered my phone. Uh, but she does that and it'll make the noise and that's how she finds her phone. And so my game is that whenever she says okay Google, I yell play Funky Town. That is that is hilarious. And, and I just okay played Google myself trick because is actually a really good hack. My phone is now playing Funky Town because I just played myself. <laughs> no. Oh. It found... No, it started playing Talking Heads. That's a notable improvement. Bad Google, good Spotify. I did, um, I, I did an episode a long time ago with Merlin Mann, and I mentioned that I was working... On, this is prior to Siri... Uh, and I, was, I had mentioned that my lights were now voice-controllable and he asked what the uh, the voice command was, and then he started saying it just to see if he could turn my lights on. But I had headphones on, so jokes on him. So former MacWorld uh, editor Dan Frakes, you may know, he's also been on the podcast. Is my boss, my direct report at <laughs> present. Um, he has an Alexa, and we were in a video call about our smart home strategy, and people kept saying Echo and Alexa, or they kept saying Echo. And he kept getting false alarms. So that's when I first learned the power of Echo Play Funky Town. <laughs> because I, uh, I thoroughly ruined that meeting. And every so often I do it again just to keep him on his toes. Uh, it's brilliant. But, and as more people get Echoes, like the chances of somebody on any given conference call having one goes up. So sure. I, I like to think that I'm a gray hat. I'm, you know, teaching people care about their network security by being an unhelpful jerk in uh, in work meetings. I, that is basically, when you look at the number of black hat hackers who are then hired as white hat hackers, as security experts, I, I yeah. think that's exactly how security works. I think that that's, that's, 
that's my limit is is telling people's uh, speakers to play things they don't want to hear. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, I'm assuming they don't want to hear Funky Town. The echo, the echo dot is actually also coming up on my Amazon purchase list. I, uh, I, I have heard wonderful things about Alexa versus Siri. I am, I'm very curious. I've heard good things about it too. I've so far resisted the digital assistant in the house, um, mainly because they don't yet do voice recognition. And I, the thing about toddlers is they're really smart. <laughs> I don't want. Do you mean recognizing a particular voice, like parent? Yeah. It? So, like, yeah. if 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 you say, "Hey Siri, does anyone everyone's iPhone in range pick it up, or is it just your iPhone?" Can you? Uh, can it's you everyone's know? iPhone. Yeah. So Google on the phones, you can train it to respond to your particular voice or a voice that sounds similar to you. But like with Alexa and Google Home, it's just whoever says the word. Right. I've heard stories which, which of my friends who also to great humorous pranks. Yeah. And my friends who have like three, four, five year olds, they're saying, Yeah, okay, now my kid can turn on Winnie the Pooh whenever she wants. Or turn out all the like uh, turn out all the lights in my room because she thinks it's funny. Do you know if with Alexa you can change the name? You can change it to Alexa, Echo, Amazon, or Computer. Computer's yeah. the new one. That's not as handy. I, w I really wish I could come up with a a, a non-Hey Siri command. Yeah. There were a few, um, a few Motorola phones would let you pick whatever voice uh, activation phrase you wanted. And I had, for a while I had mine to be okay computer. But it turns out I talk about computers a lot. So <laughs> it was just always... And I, I, I mentioned this on Twitter and I think you saw that exchange because... But uh, yeah, it's true. It it kept giving me false alarms. Even I feel we, we're gonna have to find a way to talk about these digital assistants without saying their names. <laughs> yes, we, we'll have to have code words. Yes. Well, because uh, and and Apple recently introduced Siri to the Mac, and yeah. there's no Hey Siri for the Mac. So I've been working on turning uh, the dictation voice commands to trigger Siri. Ooh. I'm getting really close. Um, but that, that would give me the option to make it whatever command I want to to trigger Siri, at least on the Mac. Nice. Yeah, my desktop Windows has Cortana, which I've never used. That's my story. I've never even heard about it. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> where are we? Your third pick. Uh, yeah, Pomodoro technique. Um, it's an it's a intermittent pick of mine because when, every so often I go through like a two week jag of using it, and I'm really productive, and then I forget, and then I'm not productive. Um, have you heard of the Pomodoro technique? Oh yes, but okay. but I will let you give a quick description of it for people who haven't. Okay, briefly, a Pomodoro. Uh, it gets its name from tomato looking kitchen timer, and the idea is that you have two lists and a timer and your first list is your activity inventory that's all the stuff you want to do second list is your to-do list that's all the stuff you need to do today to get those inventory to get the you know to knock things off your list and then you assign you take your timer and you assign a 25 minute block of time to one specific task one thing you just turn everything else off don't get distracted 
you just focus on that one thing for 25 minutes, then you take a five minute break. And if you didn't get done with that thing, you put another 25 minute block into it. And if you did get done with it, you go down to the next thing on your list and assign 25 minutes to that. And 25 minutes is a short enough period of time that it's usually possible uh, for me to actually concentrate for 25 minutes at a time sometimes. If conditions are if conditions are right, I can be very productive. Usually, if it's the first thing I do in the morning, I can knock out three or four of them, and then there's emails and meetings and stuff, and then I can't. But um, yeah, it's surprisingly useful, and then surprisingly also hard to remember to do. So the uh, I bought a book on the Pomodoro technique that I never read. Um, Should assign some Pomodoros to that. <laughs> my understanding of the Pomodoro technique, based on the timers that I use, is that it's like twenty minutes of work, five minute break, repeated four times, and then you get a half hour break. It's something like that. Yeah, I think the original called for twenty five minutes, five minutes off, twenty five minutes, five minutes off. Yeah, do that four times, and then a fifteen minute break. But I feel like there there ought to be lunch in there somewhere. <laughs> I, I assume that you yeah. get a, uh, a a real break when you need it. but uh, Yeah, but that, that's the basic idea. Yeah, four chunks of time, 25 minutes, and then a little break. Yeah, there's an app on the Mac called Zen Timer that puts a little tree on your desktop. And as your your intervals progress, the tree grows leaves. And then when that block is up, the leaves all fall to the bottom of the screen slash the ground. And uh, it's really gorgeous. What do you use for a timer? uh, I literally have a little uh, kitchen timer shaped like a tomato, like the official Pomodoro timer. It's not branded, but I wanted a tomato. Um, And then um, in parallel, if I'm really on my game, there's an app on my phone called Forest, which is very similar. It grows a little, a little voxel-looking tree, so like more like a, a video gamey tree. Like you, um, well, yeah. This the Zen Timer yeah. one is very uh, looks like a, some kind of fractal program. But. Yeah. So this is this is like very, yeah, very voxel. And if you pick up your phone while the timer's on, the tree dies. So. <laughs> It incentivizes me because often, you know, I'll be all right not looking at other stuff on my computer during my 25-minute block, but then it's too easy to pick up my phone and be like, oh, well, I'm on Twitter during my, you know, focus time. So it's, it's all about disincentivizing distraction, making it slightly harder to get distracted because so many times you go to Twitter, you're not thinking about it, you go to Facebook, you're not thinking about it, you go to, you know, Gizmodo for the 48th time that day without even realizing it. Yeah. So just 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 breaking that little cycle of distraction, uh, as you may know. Yeah, there there are a ton of uh, apps, at least on Mac OS, that basically let you block your own access to distracting websites. I mean, that's really that's really what you have to do. You have to. It's not about willpower. It's about creating structures that let you that make it easier to succeed than not succeed or yeah. make it slightly harder to fail at least. Yeah. I found it's, it's like, um, creating a habit, you know, you only need a willpower, you only need willpower to start the habit and then eventually it's just what you do. 
That's the theory. Sounds nice, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) I found that to be true. All right, so my third pick is My New Roots. It's a uh, essentially a cookbook, but Mm. there's a a website and an iPhone app. I imagine, let's see, apps. I'm going to it. Oh, it's vegetarian. Yes, vegetarian and vegan. Oh, this is very useful to me. Are you vegetarian? I'm not, but my wife is, and we tend to cook vegetarian in the home because I'm a little bit lazy, and cooking meat is messier than not cooking meat. Yeah, I I was vegetarian for 17 years, and then I, I started being willing to eat at least, like, locally sourced meats, but... I generally, out of instinct, I cook vegetarian. Yeah. And uh, I I don't do a lot of vegan, but it happens. And, yeah. Um, and gluten-free happens a lot, too, due to other people's needs and taste. So, yeah, this, this site, introduced to me by my friend Elle, um, actually provides an amazing like really good really tasty recipes the kind of stuff that you uh if you become vegetarian and you start making the mistake of living on like soy burgers <laughs> uh this stuff is really kind of a uh a wake up call to how good how good you can make plant-based meals it's some of the photography in the description reminds me a lot of uh, Plenty by Otto Lenghi. Dude, that, okay, so that was a recent pick of mine, actually. That is currently my absolute favorite cookbook. Um, Otto Lenghi in general, even yeah. the cookbook by Otto Lenghi. Yeah, it, those are amazing. And I, I do think there are some recipes in here that are on par with his style. I have to say, we found a few really successful recipes from that book, but sometimes it's like, all right, this is my absolute favorite dish. It involves an uncommon spice from Iran (laughs) and a fruit that only grows on Thursdays in the negative zone. If you don't have that fruit from the negative zone, you can use dried lemon from (laughs) Yemen. Which, which is why I ended up... It was because of Ottolinghi cookbooks that I bought the Food Lovers... Um, oh, I forgot the name of it. I have this book that is the Food Lovers Companion. And it is a book of like good substitutes. Definitions of... Because a lot of times he'll use uh, uh, ingredient names that are either from like UK terminology or things that I just can't find here. Yeah. So I can look up what they are and then what is a decent substitute for them. Nice. I actually uh in combination have made some really good recipes from that book. What's your favorite? Black pepper tofu. Ooh. Although the uh the garlic uh caramelized garlic, it's uh I can't remember what you call it. It's like a quiche kind of thing but you make it in a popover crust it's amazing it uses like 50 garlic cloves and amazing but the black pepper tofu is actually a pretty easy recipe and it is every time i make it i'm 
I'm ecstatic. It's so good. I got to get better at cooking more food. My wife and I tend to, we work long hours and we tend to like just do subsistence kind of stuff or reheating something from the freezer and, you know, it's not ideal. That's funny because I've actually been working on cooking less stuff. <laughs> I feel like it's become a time suck. <laughs> I need to start making meals that have more leftovers. Yeah. Uh, well, then you, right. can still, you can still cook stuff and then you've got right. the, the meal just, that keeps It's on a matter mealing. of better planning is my yeah. issue. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, so thank you for the top three picks. You can be found at... On Twitter, you're Nedwards, N-E-D-W-A-R-D-S. And uh, is there a specific, is there a landing page at, at uh, Wirecutter? I couldn't find. No, I don't have a landing page there. I mostly edit. I don't have a lot of bylines anymore. Um, but if you go to the like the PC or the networking or the storage sections, you'll sense my presence. You'll feel me there. <laughs> Fair enough. And... Uh, and then your podcast is found at www.lizardpeopledearreaders.com. It is, yeah. And when do you expect to release a new episode? Oh, gosh. What year is this? Um, 2017 now. All right. Let's talk about February. We'll do it in February. Wow. All right. New episode. I, I will make the same promise for Overtired. We'll, all right. Uh, let's do it. We'll have like a... A team motivation. Yeah, we'll figure it out. Let's get back into this pop culture cast. Let's do it. The people anywhere need else, us. <laughs> anywhere else you want to be found? No, that's pretty much it. That's pretty much it. I've given up on my my many old blogs. I'm just I'm just basically <laughs> on Twitter and at work. All right. And on the podcast. Yeah. All right. And I am Brett Terpstra. I am at brettterpstra.com. And I am TT Scoff everywhere else, uh, Twitter, GitHub, Last FM, whatever you want to find me at. Uh, Ello. Um, oh yeah, I'm Edwards on uh, Edwards on Ello as well. <laughs> nice consistency. Yeah. Good for branding. Got to be an early adopter, especially if there are no other adopters. <laughs> then you get the name. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, and uh, and you should go leave reviews on iTunes and I don't know, send me nice emails. You'll find you'll find a way. Um, so thanks uh, for being here. This is a real fun. pleasure. Yeah, it's been awesome. All right. And uh, that's episode 184 with Nathan Edwards. And we'll see everybody in a week.